0: Democracia e liberdade só existe quando as suas respectivas
1: forças armadas, assim o quer. You know I'm totally off script right now. Want to be nasty, do mine? Do mine. We're going to have the wall. We're building the wall. We're building the wall, folks. We're building the wall.
0: आज जो पार्टी यहां शोर Através do voto, você não vai mudar nada nesse país, Nada, absolutamente
1: nada. And the reality now is that we are the party of the people. Yeah. Yeah. Hello there, and welcome to Powcast, a podcast by the Project on Autocratic Legalism, or POW. I'm Fabio de Silva at the University of Oklahoma. PAL is an effort to understand how law can be used to further, as well as to resist, autocratic forces that have been on the rise around the globe. You can learn more about the project at autocratic-legalism.net. PALCAST is sponsored by the OU Center for Brazil Studies. Research and sound production for this episode were provided by Ahmed Abdelaziz. My guest today is Bojan Bugaric. Bojan is a law professor at the University of Sheffield in the UK. He has a BA from the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia, a Master of Laws from UCLA, and an SJD from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Prior to his current appointment, he held visiting positions at Trento, UCLA, and Harvard University. He also served as a deputy minister at the Minister of Interior in Slovenia in the early 2000s. Boyan is specialized in public law, and with Mark Tushnet, he just launched a book entitled Power to the People, Constitutionalism in the Age of Populism. Their book looks at the rise of different kinds of populists and their impact on constitutional law in many parts of the world. And I emphasize different kinds of populism here, because they distinguish between an authoritarian populism and a democratic one, arguing that each has different impacts on law and democracy. Boyan is also interested in the processes and circumstances that enable these leaders to rise, which he investigates through a political economy approach. This leads him to see the success of populist leaders, in part as a response to the failures of the new liberal consensus and the degree of poverty and exclusion that it created in many parts of Europe. Here's the interview. Boyan Bukaric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. I mean, I'm, I feel, you know, honored and privileged. One of the main questions driving the PAL project, as you know, is how rising autocrats use law to consolidate power against the opposition and civil society. A lot of times, these leaders claim that they are representing the people against the elites, and they use this position, real or not, to legitimize what they do. For this very reason, these leaders are frequently characterized as populists. Is this something that appears in your research, and if so, can you tell us how? My response
0: is yes. is yes to all what you said. So yes, if we speak about authoritarian populists, that is certainly true they use constitutional law to undermine to destroy democracy what we see basically are democracies that retain the facade but which are hollowed out from the within you know we have courts we have parliaments elections but the real power has been concentrated in the hands of the executive and and the elites which uh, often controls the executive themselves so the new autocrats want to keep the veneer of legality of democracy but on the other hand, they are mostly inter- interested in power grab, in concentrated power, in uh, you know dismantling the key, uh, you know, elements of constitutional democracy. Um, so, so I uh, uh, so, but that applies only to authoritarian populism. So, and, uh, and, and this aspect, you know, that I think is also very important that the new autocrats want to keep the veneer of legality and democracy has been described as a novelty compared to old-fashioned autocrats you know who win power with the force with military coups tanks on the street and so on. so when we read the usual account you know would go would give you basically a description of you know uh, you know Salvador Allende and Pinochet and Kub in Chile and then comparison with the new autocrats who use elections to undermine democracy which is correct but I don't think that this picture is necessarily completely true because if you look further back in history, we see similar patterns in different periods of history. Uh, you know, uh, I'm doing a study for a new book, and I'm reading a lot from different, from different uh, periods of time, and there are interesting developments, there were interesting developments going on, which show that quite similar things were going on even all the way back in ancient Rome, in Weimar, Germany. So we, hit, we see cases of use of constitutional hardball, so of use of law in order to undermine republics, as they were called at that time, or democracies. So that's I think uh, one point I wanted to mention, and another point is that the fact that they want to be seen as a democrats is both their advantage and disadvantage. Why is it advantage? Because uh, the fact that they are seen as a democrats keeps their you know legitimacy going on. So they are not immediately accused as autocrats. So they can you know surprise you know outside observers because there is no there are no visible signs. It takes time before you see that you know there's something going wrong in That particular country, for a usual observer, you know, not uh, you know, uh, well versed in you know reading all these you know, either legal developments or other things, you know, it looks on the surface as, this, as these as countries continue you know relatively normal life, but underneath that, then you see this power grab, which is which is taking place uh, quite uh, 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 in a quite uh, you know sophisticated and discreet way. So that's that's sort of kind of advantage, which 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 gives them you know additional uh, legitimacy and 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 gives them additional time opportunities to continue with the power grab. The disadvantage, however, is, and also and that's also opportunity for those who want to fight against uh, uh, fight back against the populist authoritarian populists is that you know they have to keep elections relatively free. It's true that they are not completely free. It's true that they are not entirely free. It's true that, for example, in like in Eastern Europe, you know, there were many, you know, problems with, you know, elections, you know, starting from gerrymandering, from changing electoral rules to their own advantage and so on and so on. But still, you know, more or less, you know, there's still a choice, a chance for opposition to win. So that's very important. So uh, if you look for them, the situation in Hungary at the moment, the opposition decided to unite on a one single ticket. And that keeps at least the hope alive that, you know, they might challenged successfully Orbán in 2022. So that's different from the old autocrats. When old autocrats, you know, seize power, they, you know, destroy democracy in a a single event. So there are two different sides of this kind of discrete destruction of democracy by new autocrats.
1: I like how you begin your response with the caveat that these uses of law to consolidate power are typical of a certain kind of populism, which you call authoritarian populism. As I told our listeners, this distinction between different kinds of populism, which have different impacts on law and democracy, is quite central to your work and will likely be quite central to our conversation. Why don't you take the opportunity and tell us more about it?
0: Actually, I, I try to uh, make a point that, you know, there are at least, broadly speaking, two versions of populism. So there is authoritarian and there is democratic populism, and... Uh... And they have very different political and legal consequences. So authoritarian populism, on one hand, is dangerous for democracy. It destroys democracy, undermines democracy. But there is also democratic populism, which tries to salvage democracy. So it's very important to distinguish between these two types of populism. And uh, I think there will be uh, plenty of time during the conversation to go into the example, into the cases. But just to give you a taste of my argument, I just want to mention a few if I may, examples for each of the types. So, you know, among the authoritarians are, you know, the usual examples that we mostly talk about. So it's, uh, you know, Eastern Europeans, it's Trump, it's Bolsonaro, it's Erdogan, and so on and so on. Uh, Democratic populists, which, you know, do not get that much attention nowadays, you know, also exist, you know, and, you know, there are historical examples, you know, Populist Party in the U.S. from the, Late 19th century, you know, there is uh, you know FDR with his New Deal, and there are current modern populists, you know, such as Bernie Sanders, such as uh, Syriza in Greece, the party which governed Greece, uh, you know, uh, uh, during the, the last term before the new government took uh, power. And then there is Podemos and so on. So um, uh, my point here is that perhaps the authoritarian populists should be better described as the authoritarians masquerading as populists, And with uh, with Mark Tushnit, we, we we just wrote this book, which is coming out in August, about populism and constitutionalism. And our central claim is that we should not talk about populism as such, as a general phenomenon, but about different versions, let's call it varieties of populism. So the book is basically a critique of certain influential accounts which talk about populism in general. We think that Talking about populism in general, a lot is lost in translation.
1: I have seen in the literature similar caveats. For example, Kim Shapley argues that the appeal by some leaders to the people is just an attempt to conceal their autocratic aspirations and behavior. In other words, what she's arguing is that we shouldn't be treating as populists those who are simply autocrats. But you seem to take an additional step here you are arguing that we shouldn't be treating all populists as if they were always autocrats. Would this be a good way to situate your contribution to this debate?
0: Thank you. Another great question. Uh, first, let me start with, with the first part of the question. I think Kim uh, is, is, is basically correct. I think she focuses mostly on autocrats. And in that sense, she's correct to question their populist uh, you know, character. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, I also agree that perhaps authoritarian populists should be better described as authoritarians, masquerading, mas- masquerading as populists, not as populists. So, so, so this is, a, this is a, something that I'm willing to endorse, to support, uh, as long as we keep this distinction between authoritarian and progressive democratic populists. So once we bring into the picture other forms of populism, we get a completely different perspective. Uh, so, um, uh, uh, like Kim, also Nadia Urbinati makes a, a similar argument in her influential study of populism called Me the People. And she argues that populists always disfigure democracy. She uses uh, Italian uh, case as one of her examples, Cinque Stelle, Five Star Movement, as her case study. And in our book with Mark, we look at what the populist coalition in Italy did. During uh, its term in power, which was relatively short, uh, less than two years, and uh, and we found out that it certainly didn't disfigure democracy. It initiated a referendum, which reduced the size of the MPs in the Italian Parliament, which was one of the largest parliaments in the world. Um, is this, you know, anti-constitutional, anti-plural? We think not. It was, you know, it was so. So we here disagree with Urbinati's point that. Populism in general, these figures. So again, I I, I keep coming back to the distinction. So so it's absolutely correct to say that, you know, authoritarian populists are those who, you know, uh, have a questionable populist credentials because they're mostly authoritarians. But once we move to the progressive populist, we see that, you know, the picture is quite different. So... um, in the book, we also look at the Austrian case, where you have also shortly power. There was an Austrian conservative and far-right populist coalition, and we see a similar result. And so our conclusion is that instead of talking about populism in general, we should speak about populism in practice, respecting the varieties of different populism. So there is a, there is a work of different kinds which talks about these different populists who try to redeem democracy. Uh, so and and there are also other examples of populist constitutionalism, uh, like uh, case of the referendums in Ireland, constitution making in Iceland. Uh, then there is work of uh, Helen Landemore, Open Democracy, which is really important here in talking about you know uh, democratic credential of many democratic populists. So, so my my answer is basically that yes, uh, uh, it, it's correct to point to the uh, questionable populist uh, character of many authoritarians, but on the other hand populism is very useful when we talk about the real populist you know the, and not all of them are uh, progressive some of them are conservative so, so that's my response uh, to your question I hope that I answer your question
1: so let me fully follow your reasoning here populism is not necessarily contrary to political liberalism leaders can rise claiming to represent the people against the elites but they can rule within the boundaries of liberal constitutions. And when this happens, they end up including in politics and policy those who had been previously excluded. So they make both democracy and constitutionalism stronger. I think a fair question then becomes, what conditions are needed for these good populaces to emerge and perhaps more importantly, to remain as good populaces when there can always be a temptation by them to abuse power.
0: Yeah, uh, again, a great and a, and a difficult question. So, um, so basically, this is the story of democratic progressive populism, which goes back to the first populist party in the U.S. in the in the in the late 19th century. So, so the, the populist party, uh, wonderfully described in the new book by of Thomas Frank, which is called uh, No. Uh, know uh, the people, uh, the history of anti-populism. Then there were Russian Narodniks also in the 1860s uh, in, in and 70s a, 1870s, or sort of a, a, a agrarian version of kind of you know progressive quasi-socialist populist not very influential at that time, but you know existing at that time. Then there is a, a Franklin Delano Roosevelt New Deal, which. Uh, Uh, borrowed many ideas and many proposals from the the populist and other progressive movements in the U.S. And more recent examples, such as Bernie Sanders, um, uh, Elizabeth Warren was also an an example of an interesting economic populist. Then we had Syriza, which was in power for four years in Greece. We have Spanish Podemos, which is a coalition partner in Spain. Uh, socialist Party, in Netherlands, and so on and so on. So there are there are examples, but there are fewer examples compared with the authoritarian populists. So this is again a very important question to be asked: Why, uh, you know, authoritarian populists, you know, prevail today? But nevertheless, we see that the progressive populism is possible. So, and there is also an emerging literature that talks more about this kind of populist. I think if we look back at the last four or five years. Uh, you know, uh, most of the literature was heavily concentrated on this authoritarian aspect. You know, there's a an excellent scholar, young scholar of uh, populism of, uh, from Latin America, Camila Vergara, who just published her book on populism, and she calls this authoritarian turn in populism. Which is this emphasis on the authoritarian aspect of populism. But there is a new literature coming out which talks more about this different progressive kind of populism so just mention just a few names just for uh, if it's okay just for uh, sort of uh, you know information so, so there's an important book coming out by Bill Will Forbett and Fishkind which is about all anti-oligarchic uh, constitutionalism about the history and the concept in the US uh then uh, uh, Thomas Frank which I mentioned Camila Vergara published also her book on anti-oligarchy uh, uh, populism and constitutionalism uh, then uh, apologies for self promotion it's my and mark tushnet books on 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 uh, power to the people on constitutional and populism and so on and so on. so the key condition is that they are democratic, that people who support them are democratic uh, answering your question which are the most important conditions for them so basically you know, if you get you know autocrats, you know they are not going to be democratic, and it's most likely they are going to slide into you know some kind of autocracy. So basically, you have to elect good people. That's the that's that's the core recipe. So you have to have you know first people who are democrats, and second people who elect uh, people who uh, you know support democracy. So um, so you 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 know you elect people like you know Bernie Sanders, like you know like Syriza in Greek in Greece. Yet, the literature portrays often, you know, this new left populism as anti-liberal uh, and also as, as an example of authoritarian backsliding, which is quite unfortunate. And uh, the, I was quite shocked on uh, many occasions when I read a very important book by serious scholars where, where you can find you know, parties, especially Syriza, was always put in the camp of authoritarian populists. And uh, in the book with Mark, we look at the case of Greece. We look at the records of Syriza. What did actually what did they actually do? Not only what they promised, what they say, but what they actually did. And I don't. There's no track record of any authoritarianism. You know, several occasions they, you know, they attacked judges. They criticized judges because they were unhappy with the decisions. There were two, three others. You know, uh, you know, attempts of a certain power grabs. Of course, they uh, appointed many of their friends to different positions. But you know. Where in the world, you know, you don't see this pattern. No, there's no country where politicians don't, at certain occasions, nominate their party friends to certain positions. So, but as, as a general, I think it's absolutely unfair to accuse you know, Syriza of, of you know, being authoritarian. And, uh, and there's even a new important empirical take on the authoritarian backsliding by two political scientists, which I you know, hugely respect, uh, Stephen Haggard and Kaufman, and they also put Syriza in that camp, which I think it's uh, it's, it's completely unfortunate and incorrect. Syriza, as Karl Smude, one of the key scholars of populism, in his book, short book on Syriza, basically mentions, you know, uh, uh, Tsipras, the, the prime minister was you know was committed liberal democrat. Actually, he he supported the key principles of con- constitutional democracy. So the temptation to abuse power is not inherent in populism it's inherent in any political movement you know and um, and also as a footnote, you know there's an older u s tradition of populist or popular constitutionalism that goes back to Bruce Ackerman, first volume with the People, Richard Parker, here the People rule, you know Mark Kashnet, Larry Kramer, and so on, which already you know dealt with in certain aspects of you know this it was sometimes called popular. Sometimes populist, sometimes progressive, but these were all the instances of this kind of progressive populism or constitutionalism that I'm talking about. In Europe, however, populism always had a bad foretaste because it was always connected with the, you know, with fascists and and Nazis because of historical reasons. And then there is Latin American populism, which was more often than not also associated with authoritarianism. So, uh, to make a long story short, we see quite different. Uh, uh, versions of populism even among the progress on the progressive side and which are often lumped together into one category i think we have to be careful we have to uh, look carefully into the history of populism and also we have to be careful about you know making important distinctions with all these different examples i think we need to write a history of populism anew again i think the current history has a many many different problems and uh, uh, there is a there's a there's a also a, a Great account coming out by a young, new historian from Cambridge, uh, Anton Yeager, who also wrote this uh, revisionist account of populism in the United States. I think will be probably out sooner or later. His PhD dissertation from Cambridge University in the UK.
1: There's something else about your work that I find very original and useful, and that is the fact that you want to study not just the consequences, but also the causes of populist leaders becoming so successful. This is where you introduce your political economy approach and you build on Karl Polanyi's double movement to explain why we ended up with some of them in office. Their populist nature is part of this explanation. What gives validity to the claim that they represent the people is the fact that there has been indeed a people that has lacked representation, particularly in economic decisions under the new liberal consensus that took root in the 90s. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, thank you. This is really great
0: uh, question. I really like this question. So, first, about why looking at the causes of populism, because I think that without understanding the causes of populism, it is impossible to devise a proper response to populist challenges. So, looking at the causes helps us understand that many grievances that give rise to populism are real, are, uh, you know, should be. Um, you know, heated should be, you know, uh, you know should uh, deserve certain response. And understanding this is a first step towards more complex and accurate picture of populism. So that's why I think looking at the causes of populism is extremely important. Uh, next thing, which you, uh, which you uh, uh, mentioned, is why political economy? And uh, here I have to say that uh, I'm a big fan of political economy in general. I think it should be used for any legal analysis. Law is part of political process and should be studied as part of it, not as a, some separate entity with its own life separate from political developments. I have to say here that I was, you know, heavily influenced by uh, during my graduate study in America with, you know, several, you know, brilliant scholars. Dave Trubeck was one among them. So most of his graduate seminars actually were about political economy of different things. We studied political economy of globalization many, many different things. So I was was heavily exposed to this kind of stuff during my graduate study and and that kind of stayed with me. So that's the the origin of my fascination with with political economy. And uh, as I said, I found it uh, extremely important for a general study of law, but also for populism as well. Why Polanyi? Because Polanyi is useful because it helps us to understand why populists get elected. They offer alternatives when politics declared that there are no alternatives. As in the interwar 1930s, these alternatives can go in very different directions. Some of them are neo-fascist, authoritarian. Some of them can be democratic, progressive, socialist. So the authoritarian populism is invoked is, is in today. It prevails. Why? And uh, you know, I'm not a political scientist, but my reading of the you know of the, of the work of political science is that the main reason why authoritarian populism prevails is because the left has been in crisis for some time. Both center-left and center-right have become too similar. So it's politics devoid of alternatives and populists basically respond to this. They try to fill this void. And uh, and the, 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 your last question, uh, you know, the, the importance of economy in this political economy, I would say it's extremely important, but it's not the only factor which explains the rise of populism. I think we should be very careful uh, about giving too much weight to only single factors. So it's, I think it's economy, it's culture, it's psychology, and I don't think that single factor explanation are very helpful. I think we have to read political economy, but also social studies dealing with shifts in culture and authoritarian behavior. For example, one of my favorite reads nowadays on these issues is an old-fashioned Erich Fromm, Escape from Freedom, written in 1941. I think it should be put back on the syllabi in our social science department.
1: I totally agree that there are many factors involved, but I wanted to spend a few more minutes here discussing the economic aspect of populism, because this is something that we don't usually talk about. In your work, you show that many of the authoritarian populists in Europe are working to design a new economic model that pushes back against the austerity or orthodoxy of the EU and that is based on more public spending and industrial policy. In countries like Brazil, the pattern is very different. The election of Jair Bolsonaro represents a backlash against the left and the new developmental state. Likewise, in the United States, Trump doubled down on neoliberalism, increasing corporate welfare. One of the first measures that he adopted after taking seat was to give tax breaks to large corporations. How does this kind of neoliberal populism fit your models?
0: Well, again, as, uh, as I uh, tried to emphasize earlier, there are different sorts of populism with different host ideologies and policy prescriptions. So once we think about populism in plural, so as a variety of populism, it is easier to understand these differences, which you mentioned. So what populists share is that they try to fill the void produced by the politics of no alternatives. How they feel it is a different question. So it varies from country to country, from a context to context. So there's actually a term in the literature which describes the type of populism that you mentioned of Trump and Bolsonaro. It's called plutocratic populism. It's a, one of the first books which used that term was by Pearson and Hacker. It's called Let Them Eat Their Tweets. So it, it talks about precisely about the issue that you mentioned in your question. So the point is that, you know, they give economic uh, benefits, you know, to their donors, to the rich elites. You know, the tax cut was the most important economic reform enacted during the Trump administration. And what they give to the, you know, the, you know, the desperate, you know, uh, voters from, you know, Midwest and other parts, you know, which were you know, quite essential in bringing power to power. They give them promise, nationalistic promise, tweets, you know, Twitter. So that's, that's plutocratic populism. So promises... To, you know to the middle class and and, and you know and uh, abandoned working class and real benefits to the uh, to the wealthy to you know to the to the elites which support the, the Republican party so it's, uh, so it's uh, that's how uh, for example that's how Trump populism uh, survived for the last four years
1: One other point that you include in your political economy analysis is how the global economic order, offers opportunities or constraints for uh, right-wing populists to rise to power and rule. So, for example, you argue that Chinese investment was quite instrumental to support Orbán's government in Hungary. Given COVID-19 and the election of Joe Biden in the United States, who's adopting a quite social-democratic uh, social democratic, uh agenda in economics we may see a change in neoliberal hegemony where do you think this is all going and how is it likely to affect the current strength of right-wing populists
0: this is probably the most difficult question for me because you know as a, you know as a lawyer public lawyer constitutional lawyer and not you know international uh, you know international relations person you know i should probably ask here my son who studies international relations you know to answer this question or somebody else but uh, so let me give, you know, my take, my reading of the literature. So, so Henry Kissinger already, you know, made the point that, you know, what we think you know, we're seeing is emergence of a new Cold War between the U.S. and China. With Biden in power, this is going to have a strong impact on populists all over the world. So there's going to be a, a strong impact. But uh, I would be quite skeptical in making too dramatic pronouncements about the future because, you know. Who knows? I mean, it depends on so many different factors. Just look four years ago, the picture was completely different. You know, there was Trump in power. There was Brexit. Eastern Europeans, Poles and Hungarians already entrenched in power. There was then, you know, Bolsonaro. Okay, after after two or three years, coming to power and so on. So there was all this talk about the populist height, about the populist moment, you know, sweeping across the globe. Now, it seems that it can be reversed as well. You know, the forces of populism are having a hard time in many countries. You know? So I think that much depends on whether the Democrats are going to be able to formulate a strong alternative to status quo politics. And Biden is a quite a positive surprise uh, for the beginning. And, but there are also other trends which were well for the populists. So uh, one thing which, which actually, uh, uh, I think, strengthens their position are cultural wars. So cultural wars are very good for populists. So, so if I were, you know, a right wing or authoritarian populist, I would do everything to prolong, you know, cultural wars in one way or another. I think here, uh, the, the the progressive, you know, the centuries, the libertarians, liberals have a, have a have a tremendous difficulties to respond to to the claims, arguments, and 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 demands that uh, that authoritarian populists are making in their agenda. So, so, so. Uh, so basically the answer to your question is that I don't have a real sort of a firm, uh, you know, I, I would be very reluctant, you know, to to go very firmly into one or another direction. I, I think that it, it is hard to see this as, as a sort of, a, a, you, know, a, a, you know, a steady movement in one or another direction. So I think it, it depends a lot on, you know, elections, individual countries. So there are reversals here and there, and uh, I, uh, so that would be kind of a you know, complicated <laughs> answer, not very clear a response to a question.
1: Before I let you go, I wanted to ask you, as I like to say, to open up your library and tell us what are the three key readings that you would recommend to our project and audience?
0: Um, which are my three books that I would like to sort of, uh, you know, uh, recommend to the people who are interested in these developments, where I selected three special books for, for different reasons. So you asked me the question about political economy. So I don't know if, you, if you've seen this one. It's it's called The Death of Democracy. It's Hitler's Rise to Power and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic. It's written by Benjamin Carter Heat. He's a legal scholar and historian. It's a beautiful story of the rise of Hitler in Germany Fault in the narrative which sounds familiar if you study you know the, the 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 politics of populism so basically the rise of hitler was an example you know of the you know nazis revenge to globalization at that time in germany and uh, it's the kind of the genre that you know uh, i would love to be able to write about but you know because i'm not a historian i can only read it and enjoy it but it, it's a wonderful book uh, probably one of the best accounts i've seen on the on the rise of uh, you know, Nazism, which is written in a narrative, again, can be very easily connected with the debates we're having about populism. Uh, then uh, also connected with the political economy. It's one of, I think the, one of the best accounts which explains the causes. So this is the real you know political economist from London School of Economics, Jonathan Hopkins, anti-system politics. Uh, the crisis of market liberalism in rich democracy. So he talks about neoliberalism, about res- why neoliberal, neoliberal policies gave rise to these anti-system parties, as he calls them. But uh, once you read the book, you see that basically he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about the populist party. He's just uh, he's reluctant to use the word populist. Some uh, some as you know some authors. Don't think that populism is a useful word. They rather use other words because it's too broad. And uh, and I partially actually agree with that. I think one way out of that is to you know divide it into you know or see many different versions of populism. So to talk about varieties. And the third, the last one, <laughs> goes very back <laughs> into history. It's about ancient Rome. It's called Mortal Republic. How Rome fell into tyranny. It's written by Edward J. Watts. And it's, again, a very interesting reminder that, you know, the the things that we look today, you know, we talk, you know, we are convinced that this use of legal ways, you know, that autocratic legalism is something relatively modern thing. It happened in ancient Rome, you know, the Romans did actually autocratic legalism at that time as well. It's, again, a beautiful book, beautifully
1: written. That was Boyan Bugagic. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Fabio. It was a pleasure. If you like our series, please share it with your friends on social media. They can access our episodes on the main podcast platforms or on our website. And if you have comments or suggestions regarding the series or our project, feel free to contact me at fabio.isaisilva at ou.edu.